Concerning the subject matter tonight, specifically demons, um, there tend to be three approaches that are common in Christianity. Uh, If we were to oversimplify, we could say that there is um, the charismatic approach where everything is about the devil or the demons. It's like the devil made me do it. Uh, The devil is seen as the great evil, the great enemy, and the, the one that we are facing and having to deal with. There would be also the the reformed approach, where the great evil that we face is the flesh. The reformed folks are always concerned with and obsessed with and focused on the flesh, mortifying the flesh, putting to death the flesh. And then the third and final paradigm that is often used to think about the, the, the evil that we face is the fundamentalist approach, which is, um, I'm not using that word in a derogatory way, just like the, those who would consider them fundamentalists, which is a large segment of American evangelicalism, uh, they would focus on the world. So in the Bible, you have the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, fundamentalists are concerned with primarily with the world being the great evil, which is why in the fundamentalist approach, like the independent Baptist movement and all that, it's focused primarily on separating from the world. And if you can separate from the world enough, you can be rid of evil. You can deal with evil that way, uh, which is the reason why, for example, when it comes to things like um, entertainment, uh, alcohol, tattoos, drinking, all that sort of thing. The fundamentalist approach is we have a strict separation from it. Uh, now, the reformed approach is not that. It is. It would be a different approach because they're concerned with the flesh, not the world. So they can be in the world, but not of the world. And so for them, um, going out for a drink or something is, is not a big deal and is actually part of the broader reformed tradition. Um, so much so that there are quite a few jokes about it within Presbyterian circles and such. Um, and then... Within the charismatic or Pentecostal circles, it's, it's all about the devil, the demons. There's a demon behind every bush. Now, for our type of churches, our type of Christians and circles, there tends to be almost no emphasis whatsoever on either angels or demons. And if you do talk about or give any thought to them, it is usually considered, oh, that's, that's charismatic. And I'm not charismatic, so we don't, we don't deal with that stuff because all that stuff closed at the end of the first century, which is a vast oversimplification and misunderstanding of the concept of cessationism that is actually not part of the doctrine of cessationism. Um, All that being said, it was very, very interesting and very ironic that as I prepared for this and flipped through five systematic theologies and was looking for their sections on this to see what they had to say about this. Um, Several of them, I'd say at least half of them, didn't have anything on angelology. Like, they didn't even have a section for it. Um, And you'll be amused to know that the only one that had a decent section on it was this book by John MacArthur. Uh, he has a, a huge section on it, which I was I was surprised by that. Um, so, that being said, much of tonight's content is coming from this. Um, I have my separate Word document, which I had transcribed a lot of things from it, but I thought, you know what, I'll just bring the book up here. Uh, so, if you, whoever has the clicker, if you can go into the first slide, which has my general outline, um, MacArthur divides, or his editors, or the professors who wrote this, um, they divide it into five sections, holy angels, Satan, demons, angel of the Lord, and then Q&A. I knew we would not have time to get into Q&A, so I just didn't even include that from the section. If you could hit the next slide. Uh, Part one, section one, is on holy angels. Divides this into 10 sections, which we're going to fly through. Point one, Old Testament and New Testament. So you obviously have um, 
the good angels, the holy angels, the elect angels. They go by a variety of these names. We'll use them in uh, any of those names. But if I say the good angels, I'm referring to the holy angels, which I'm also referring to the elect angels. And um, I would hope that you don't read too much into me calling them one or the other. Uh, But these are the good angels. They're referenced... Uh, The word angel appears 213 times in 24 of the 39 Old Testament books. Uh, Most of these occurrences appear in the historical books. Um, The prophets feature the word angel 41 times, which is 19%, while the poetic books mention it only 15 times, which is 7%. So it's not as common of a theme in like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. The largest category to reference speak of human messengers, because uh, the word angel is also synonymous for messenger. Uh, so just because you see the word doesn't mean it's a spiritual messenger. It might be a human messenger who is coming to deliver a message, which occurs 100 times in the Old Testament, which is 40%, 47%. Um, the use of the word angel to refer to holy angels is scattered throughout the Old Testament. The historical books, it's seven times uh, in Genesis, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles. In the poetic books, it's five times in Job's, Job and Psalms. And thirdly, the prophetic books, it occurs 12 times, uh, primarily in Zechariah. Now, that's the Old Testament uh, occurrences of the discussion of holy angels. The New Testament, the word occurs 176 times in 18 of the 27 New Testament books, every book except Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Uh, of the nine books, only Philippians, Titus, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John make no mention of human messengers, holy angels, Satan, demons, or the angel of the Lord by name or title. The term angel appears 55 times in the Gospels, with a heavy emphasis on Matthew and Luke. Acts also has 21 occurrences. So, this is, this is a common word, but um, it is referenced about half the time to human messengers, and about the other half referring to um, spiritual holy angels. Um, Unlike the Old Testament, by far the greatest use of the Greek term for angel or messenger in the New Testament is to refer to holy angels 152 times. Sorry, it's 86%, not 50%. Uh, The remaining occurrences refer to humans, which is uh, 14 times. So you have that as your Old Testament, New Testament. Secondly, we've got the reality of the angels. The reality of the angels. Um, Just overall, first off, just... Consider angels are real. This is not um, mystical. It's not folklore. It's not like little statues that you might see on the front step of your Catholic neighbor's house, um, where you know, like this fat baby with the the angel or with the the bow and arrow. Like, yes, that's not real. But the angels in the Bible, holy angels, are real. They do have real personhood, which is your first point. Personhood. Angels possess three identical traits of personhood intellect, emotion, and will. Secondly, beyond personhood, you have personal qualities. Angels are beings created by God, which is why they're called sons of God in Job. They're called spirit beings, ministering spirits. Um, Both Satan is called a lying spirit, and demons are called evil spirits. By Christ's definition, a spirit is immaterial, one without flesh and bones. So angels don't have bodies in that traditional human way. Um, Angels were created morally pure and remain so in perpetuity or forever. They are called holy in several places. Holy angels are elect angels, 1 Timothy 5.21. They also do not need to be saved. They don't need redemption. Uh, Hebrews 2.14 and 16 mentions this. Um, There's much more that can be said on that. Let's keep moving. As far as the character of these holy angels, uh, there are many terms, many names or descriptions which define these. So first is angel, which we just talked about, which is a messenger in Angelas. Secondly, archangel is a term that is used. Michael is referred to in Daniel as one of the chief princes. Um, the word chariot is described from Psalm sixty-eight seventeen in reference to angels as well. Um, cherubim occurs many times in the Bible. Elohim 
Uh, the word Elohim or God, God's lowercase g, is used here to ref- in Psalm 8.5 and Hebrews 2.7. It's used to refer to angels in the most basic sense of superior ones. Gabriel is an angel mentioned by name. Holy ones, that term is used many times. Hosts, living creatures, men, Genesis 18.2, Mark 16.5, Acts 1.10. Michael, by name, ministering spirit, referenced several times in the Psalms and Hebrews. Morning star, princes, see Daniel 10 and 12. Seraphim, sons of God, watchers. So there's 17 names or terms given to describe holy angels in the Bible. As far as the history of angels, these both uh, the angels and demons will both have um, similar history where it starts off with creation. God creates them. Uh, God created all the angels. They are uh, part of his creation. Unlike Jesus, Jesus was not created. He was not the first creation, but he is eternal. Uh, angels are not like that. Angels do have a beginning and God did create them. Um, then, so you have first creation. Secondly, the Old Testament Angels appear in chronological order in the Old Testament, starting, well, not starting here, but after creation. Then you have uh, Genesis 18 with Abraham, Lot, and Sodom. There are angels that appear. Um, They appear in Jacob's dream in Genesis 28. Uh, They also appear in speaking to Jacob in Genesis 32. Angels also minister to Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Angels are featured around the throne in Isaiah 6. They also appear, again, Gabriel speaks to Daniel in Isaiah, sorry, in Daniel chapter 8. And Daniel, Gabriel also speaks again to Daniel in, in Daniel 9. And then Daniel speaks to, or sees an angel in Daniel 10, and then Daniel 12. So we've gone from 2000 BC and then prior to that at creation all the way up to the 500s BC. Then you have in Zechariah, angels are mentioned 12 times, and this is around 480 BC. So these angels are occurring throughout the Old Testament. It's not just in one particular time or season or era in the Old Testament, but it's throughout. And then uh, thirdly, you've got in the New Testament era. At least 16 specific New Testament historical encounters with angels occurred over about 100 years from roughly 5 BC to AD 95, from the time of Christ's birth to the day of John's prophetic vision in Revelation. So, in chronological order, you have first uh, angels speaking to Zechariah around 5 BC, uh, angels speaking to, that's in Luke 1, also in Luke 1, Mary's encounter with Gabriel, Joseph's uh, encounter with an angel, also around 5 BC. Uh, In Luke 2, the angel speaking to the shepherds, also that same time. Uh, The angel speaking again to Joseph um, two more times in Matthew chapter 2. And then um, to Jesus in um, Matthew 4. And then in Luke 22, uh, you know, Matthew 4 is the, uh, the angels ministering to Jesus at his, after his temptation in the wilderness. Then Luke 22, uh, there towards the end of his life. Matthew 28, Luke 24, John 20, you have the tomb encounter where Jesus, uh, his resurrector, he, he's out of the tomb and then his disciples come and they see the tomb and there is an angel there in the tomb. Um, you have angels interacting with the apostles, in the book of Acts, Acts 1, Acts 5, Acts 8, uh, this inter- interaction with Philip, Acts 10 with Cornelius, Acts 12 with Peter, think about when he was released from prison, and Paul in Acts 27, and that, this is around AD 58, and then in Revelation, you see John encountering an angel which is giving him uh, this vision, uh, AD 95. So these documented visits do not negate the possibility of other encounters that the scripture does not record. So it might have happened more times than that, but these are, these are some, and they span the entire first century. Um, then also on the chronology, uh, or the history, you will also see angels in the end times, uh, so still ahead in the future, Revelation 6 through 19. Um, concerning 
the angel's population, 0.5. Um, unlike humans, angels neither procreate or die. So they don't just make more. There is a certain number that God created, and that's, that's the number. Um, the number of these angels is described both in the Old and New Testament. Um, 1 Kings 22, 2 Kings 19, Daniel 7, Matthew 26, Luke 2, Hebrews 12, Revelation 5. All of these texts use the same type of language to refer to the number of angels, and that number is a very large number. It's words like innumerable, or 10,000 times 10,000, or myriads and myriads. So the idea is that it is a number that's so high you can't count it. But if you were going to go with a literalistic approach, 10,000 times 10,000, I think, according to this, is like 100 million. So it's at least that many. It is as many as there are stars in the sky, which is much, much more than 100 million. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a... It's a 10 with 26 zeros after it, uh, which I don't know what that number is, but that's, that's the estimated number of stars in the universe. So that is to say angels are not a rare thing. They're not a, um, a minor feature of creation, but are actually, um, there's, there's quite a few of them. Um, point six, holy angels' residence. Um, we think in terms of heaven and earth, um, in the Bible, this concept of heaven is, is used in three ways. You've got first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. First heaven would be our atmosphere, Earth's atmosphere, so like where you fly an airplane and um, where you fly your kites and um, where you skydive and do all those fun things. Uh, second heaven would be where the sun and the moon are, the stars, so the, the stuff that we see. And then the third heaven would be what we think of as heaven. It's the, the realm that God is in. It's this other dimension that is beyond where you can get uh, with a SpaceX rocket ship. So, angels live primarily in that third level, though they do, uh, I, I would argue, they frequently go into the first and second heavens as well. Um, but this text says that the angels primarily dwell in third heaven, but they go into first and second heaven for the sake of specific tasks and specific missions. Now, in light of other things that we see in scripture, such as the concept of what we would know as guardian angels, um, which the, the Bible does support that concept. It's, it's in the Psalms, like the idea that God gives his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against the stone. Um, there's a lot of Christians in this world, and there's a lot of stones that they need to avoid dashing against. And so, if he is giving his angels charge over us, I would imagine that they're not just going back and forth from heaven all the time. Um, so the idea that the angels primarily live in heaven and only occasionally come to earth, I think, is an overstatement. I would think that, that there are quite a few that surround us on a constant basis. Um, so that's the residence. Number seven, the organization. So uh, what is their, their staffing structure, their LLCs, their bank accounts, and all that? Um, just kidding. So, in the Bible, you have these terms such as angels, authorities, dominions, powers, rulers, thrones, um, living creatures, cherubim, seraphim. Um, then there's also Gabriel and Michael, archangels. Um, as I was preparing for this, and I, I was thinking, and, and this, the material that's maybe either more like non-denom or charismatic or, you know, just more like pro-angels, uh, like Michael Heiser and those types of, of people, they very, they're very comfortable referring to ranking of angels, the hierarchy of angels, the organization of angels. Um, and they'll use these terms to say like angels, authorities, dominions, powers, rulers, and thrones. These are all different levels of angels. And actually in church history, I think around the 5th century, there was a, a, a guy who wrote a book um, I don't remember either his name or the name of his book, but he categorized them into three big sections, let's say first, second, third tier, and then each of those tiers had three different levels. So it would be like saying that angels, authorities, and dominions are like 
the first level, and then those are organized according to that. And then the second level might be powers, rulers, and thrones, which they're in the middle. And then there's this upper level, which would include uh, archangels and whatnot. But um, that idea that there is a hierarchy of the angels in these terms, which are found in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians, uh, that's not just an idea of like the raving charismatics, but it is also an idea that is taught in MacArthur's systematic. So don't freak out if you hear someone refer to categories or rankings of angels because it does have both historical support and support within um, more conservative church culture. Next, you've got point eight, power. The angel's power. Um, The power of angels appears in both the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, angels caused blindness, rescued people, and destroyed cities. They struck down 70,000 men of Jerusalem. They are constantly at war with demons in the heavens. See Daniel 10. In the New Testament, an angel moved a very large stone from the entrance of Christ's tomb. They released Peter from prison. Herod was struck with a fatal case of worms by an angel. Paul referred to angels as mighty in 2 Thessalonians. Peter called them greater in might and power than humans in 2 Peter 2. In Revelation, angels will exercise power over nature. Angels will execute the seven trumpet judgments and a variety of other things. To summarize, angels are stronger than humans, but not omnipotent. So they're very powerful, but they're not all powerful. Um, before we focus on that and settle into the, like, God is more powerful than the angels, which he is, we need to just pause for a second, think about the reality that angels are more powerful than humans, and because of that, we should not mess with that. Um, in I, I took a whole course on angels and demons back during seminary. Um, it was called Spiritual Warfare and Evangelism and Missions and read a whole stack of books on this. And they were all like the four views type books so you could see what different people thought of these things. One of the conclusions that the professor made of, of all of this was, um, now right now we're talking about angels, but on the, the demon side, he said, we don't glory in talking about demons and we don't pray asking God to reveal things to us through angels. We, we leave that stuff in God's hands and we, we, don't, um, we don't dabble in that. Uh, particularly, um, if, if you think about world religions, most all world religions started with some kind of appearance of some sort of spiritual or angelic being. And the fact that angels are real, the fact that they are powerful, should just that, that should all serve to compel us to be wary and to not think that this is something that we can coerce or compel or we can tell them how to do whatever. Um, angels are greater than humans in knowledge, but they are not all-knowing like God. Angels are swifter and more mobile than humans, but they are not omnipresent like God. Um, Point nine, the angel's ministry. From time to time in creation, from the time of creation to the consummation, angels have figured prominently in executing God's purposes. The following summaries highlight the ministry of angels to, number one, to God, number two, to Christ, number three, to Christians, number four, the church, number five, unbelievers, and number six, the nations. Uh, So these are the six subsections of this point nine. Angels worship and praise God. They serve God. They gather as the sons of God before God. Uh, Regarding Christ, they participated in announcing Christ's birth. They protected Christ during his infancy. Uh, They ministered to Christ from the beginning of his ministry to the end of it. And they ministered generally to Christ all throughout uh, his ministry. Uh, number three, towards Christians, angels minister generally to believers. See Hebrews 1, 14. Uh, that language of angels being ministers sent out to minister for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, Hebrews 1, 14. That is a, a general term where we get the word deacon from. So this service that the angels 
serve for Christians is in all kinds of things. It's not just in dramatic power encounters where um, you're you you run into like some kind of witch doctor in like the West Village or something or the East Village, and uh, you d- decide to. Uh, there's more of that in the the East Village than the West Village. Um, yeah, and so you're like having a showdown with some kind of witch in the East Village, and you you're like praying, and, and God sends an angel. Like uh, that's not the scope of it. Like that could happen, but the way that angels serve us is is in a variety of ways, not just incredible things. Um, angels rejoice at believer's salvation. They provide protection. Psalm 34, 7 is one of the references I was thinking of. Psalm 35, 5. Psalm 91, 11. Matthew 18, 10. Since the episode of the rich man and Lazarus is most likely a parable, I don't really agree with that. A lot of scholars... Well, the scholars are divided. Some think it's a parable, others think it's um, not a parable. I think it is real um, for reasons that are outside the scope of what we have time to talk about tonight. Um, The next one is the church. Angels can be involved in the church with regard to, number one, the leadership of the church. Uh, Number two, women in the church. See 1 Corinthians 11. Number three, the purity of pastors. 1 Timothy 5.21. Number four, their own pursuit of understanding salvation. So the angels are looking on at the church and they're like, whoa, how does this work? 1 Peter 1.12. The next one is unbelievers. As Christ explained in one of his parables, angels will separate the weeds from the wheat. Uh, an angel will preach the gospel to all the world during the 70th week of Daniel. They will participate in Christ's second coming judgment of unbelievers. So, the relationship to holy angels towards unbelievers is not a pretty sight. It is, it is primarily in judgment. Um, next one is the nations. Angels serve God's purpose for the nations in general. See Daniel 10, and for Israel in particular, also Daniel 10 and 12 and Revelation 7. They will also specifically bring major judgment on all nations preceding Christ's second coming, Revelation 8 through 11 and 16. And then point 10, destiny, the destiny of the angels. Holy angels will not face judgment because they never sin, and uh, this is in contrast to Satan and the demons who will be judged. Um, So, in the end of the world, the destiny of holy angels is in the presence of God. Major point number two, Satan. So, you can flip to the next slide. We have the reality of Satan, the character of Satan, power, schemes. I misspelled schemes. Um, also, I'm having, have, I have issue with the formatting, too. It, was, it, it, didn't, uh, it didn't stay lined up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, the reality of Satan. Satan is real. Um, I read somewhere, I don't remember now, but uh, someone once said that when, the angel, when, when Satan shows up, he doesn't show up wearing a red suit with pointy horns and a, a pitchfork and a tail. But oftentimes, he will show up looking like everything you ever hoped for. Um, be alert to that. Satan is real. The fact of Satan's existence can neither be proven nor disproven by philosophical reasoning alone. Nevertheless, the incontrovertible ex- uh, existence of evil must have an actual perpetrator. Um, experiential claims by themselves cannot prove Satan's reality because they lack any objective standard by which the alleged experience might be validated. Uh, concerning... Um, However, a reliable historical account of human history would serve to establish a factual the factuality of Satan... Um, if the author were credible. Actually, one such book exists, the Bible, whose author is God of creation. Um, So, first you have basic facts. A whole bunch of Bible verses, Bible references, which we've already alluded to in the previous section. Um, There are lots of references in the Old Testament and lots of references in the New. There's actually more references to Satan in the New Testament than in the Old. the term translated Satan, the devil, or the evil one is uh, 74 times in the New Testament, and every New Testament writer mentions him, and 19 of the New Testament books mention him. Um, he's mentioned 30 times in the Gospels. Secondly, um, 
sorry, sub-point number two, which is still under Satan's reality, the basic characteristics of Satan. Um, he has intellect, uh, intellect, emotion, and will. Um, his intellect, he tempts Christ with his schemes against Christians. Uh, he emotionally exhibits pride. The devil also exercises his will against Christians. There are five additional personal uh, qualities to create a basic profile. Um, first, he is a created angel. Second, is he is a spirit being. Third, he has extraordinary mobility and can move all over the place. He is going to and fro on the earth. Um, number four, Satan can function both in heaven and on earth. And last, God will hold Satan morally responsible for his evil deeds. Um, and then basic contrasts, Satan reflects a studied contrast with Jesus. That does not mean they're equal, but he is frequently presented in contrast to Jesus. Uh, in, in theological books, you'll hear um, in missiology stuff related to this, uh, you'll, you'll see reference to the excluded middle, and the excluded middle is angels and demons. So you've got humans on the one side, and God on the other. This excluded middle is the angels and demons, which is often overlooked in our studies. And that is true, that angels and demons are in a different category. They're not human, they're not divine. But in the New, in the New Testament, uh, Satan is presented as this adversary, and he is set in opposition to Christ. Now, regarding Satan's character, point two, um, he is described with a variety of names. Um, we've got, what, 29 names. Abaddon, which is a transliterated uh, Hebrew word. You've got the accuser, the adversary, number three the angel of the bottomless pit. It is true that Satan will ultimately be a prisoner in hell, but he is, in some sense, the angel of the bottomless pit, and he has um, demons that are also, that are under him, and in that sense, he is presented as sort of a ruler of this, um, of the abyss. Number five, his name is also Apollyon, also Beelzebul, Belial, the devil, dragon, enemy, evil one, father of lies, god of this world, king, leviathan, liar, lucifer, lying spirit, murderer, prince of the demons, prince of the power of the air, roaring lion, ruler of this world, satan, serpent, spirit, star, strongman, and tempter. So all of these names... Uh, make sort of a picture of his character, his identity, who he is, what he is all about. Um, I think that it is important for us to keep in mind as we, um, like, there, there are books like this called Satan Cast Out, which is a study in biblical demonology by Frederick Leahy. So Frederick Leahy, this is a Puritan, uh, or Banner of Truth book in the same size as the Pearson paperback, but it's it's from a very conservative Reformed Presbyterian perspective, and he says in the beginning of the book that um, the issue is that there's not a lot of books on demonology written from a Christian perspective, and it's it's either like charismatic books or um, these books that basically say like ah that stuff doesn't happen. Um, so he wrote this this book, and it is in large part for missionaries, because in the Presbyterian mission circles, they need some resource that aligns with their theology, but also addresses the stuff that they deal with on the mission field. And it is certainly true that in faraway places, it would seem that there is a lot more demonic activity. But if we remember the names of the devil, the titles of the devil, the role of the devil, the character of the devil we will recognize that Satan is actually far more active here, even, than we would think. We would think that the demonic is only in uh, outward manifestations of demonic possession or oppression, uh, but the reality is that um, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren, um, an author of false doctrine, these types of descriptions for the devil saturate our culture. Like the fact that 
today, in our, our world today, it is almost impossible to know what to believe about almost anything. When you see some story cross the news and you're like, oh no, some terrible thing happened in this city, maybe it involved a, a police shooting or uh, some kind of political event or some kind of catastrophe. If you're a thinking person, you see that and you're like, oh no, that's terrible. But then you start to think, well, maybe there's more to the story. And then about half the time, it turns out that there actually was more to the story and it might not have even been true in the first place. But Satan, the, the, the god of this world, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, all of these types of labels and titles are given to him in Scripture. He is certainly active. He is very active in our world today, even in Western sophisticated nations like America. Uh, it is also worth noting that when we had students uh, from countries that would be in the 1040 window, so the most uh, non-Christian areas on the planet, the, the places with the least amount of gospel access, um, they, were, they would study at uh, a campus of NYU in the Middle East, and they would come over to NYU New York City. They would be with us. They would come out to Planned Parenthood with us. They would hang out with us all the time, and they would be with us for either one or two semesters, and then go back to the Middle East, and then from that place go back to their home countries, which are these extremely persecuted countries that make up uh, the, like the top five most persecuted places in the, in the world. And these students would, would leave here saying that New York City was more spiritually oppressive than either the country that they directly came from in the Middle East or their home country where Christians are being hunted. Um, so their, their, their perspective was like New York City is darker spiritually than the stand countries or um, places like that. So don't just think like, oh, the, the, the devil's work is in these like crazy things. But the devil's work is also in the ordinary things that we encounter on a, on a daily basis. Um, Satan's work is also in opposing God. Um, all right, so we're still under the character. So who he is and what he does. Um, he opposes God throughout the Old Testament. Um, so think about the fall. Think about um, God gave him the curse. Um, Satan appears accusing Job. He disputes with Michael uh, in Jude, referenced in Jude 9, but occurring in 1405 BC. He provokes David, 975 BC. He lies to Ahab in 843 BC. He influences the king of Babylon. He influences the king of Tyre. He accuses the high priest in Zechariah. Um, in the New Testament, Satan opposes God by opposing the birth of Christ, um, by tempting Christ, by afflicting the woman, uh, who is referenced in Luke 13, by sifting Peter, Luke 22, by, um, by filling Judas and causing him to betray Jesus. Um, he influenced the lie of Ananias in the book of Acts, he hindered Paul in 1 Thessalonians. He afflicted Paul, uh, referenced in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, he is finally and ultimately banished from heaven, referenced from uh, Revelation 12. Um, he empowers the Antichrist, false prophet, middle of Daniel's 70th week. He performs false signs. Um, and then you have this whole millennial situation, which depending on your view of that, but referenced in Revelation 20. Uh, also in the final battle, the end of Christ's millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, and then the final judgment. So all throughout, throughout all of history, whether from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament, you see Satan as the enemy, the opposer of God. He also imitates God. 
Satan doesn't invent things. He doesn't create things. He just destroys and decays and copies, uh, but a much worse level, what God does. So you have this, this demonic, this evil trinity with the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet from Revelation 13. Um, he has a kingdom of darkness from Colossians 1. He has his own angels and demons. He has Satan's seat. He has a throne from Revelation 2. Uh, he has churches. I think we can resonate with that. We can see that, that there are churches that are given over to the devil, but they're referenced in Satan, uh, in, Satan in Revelation 2. There's worship of the devil. Romans 1, Revelation 13. He has workers who work for him. Uh, he has false Christs, false prophets, false apostles, false teachers, false believers. He has a false gospel, Galatians 1. He has false demonic satanic theology, 1 Timothy 4.1. He has demonic mysteries, 2 Thessalonians 2. He has false and demonic miracles and demonic communion. So the devil, he doesn't invent. He just destroys and, and decays and corrupts. Satan has power. He possesses the highest power of any created being, but his power does not begin to compare with God's power. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent, immutable, and sovereign. God is immortal, great, self-existent. Satan is none of these things. But his power is at least equal to Michael the archangel. No human being possesses the supernatural power that belongs to Satan. It is not our place to, to rebuke the devil. We don't say, I rebuke you. We, we, we can't do that. Uh, in the book of Jude, it says uh, that not even the, the angels would, would be so bold as to pronounce this blasphemous judgment by saying, I rebuke you. But instead they say, the Lord rebuke you. We should not be saying, I rebuke you. We don't have any authority to do so. We're not that great. We're little ants compared to a giant car rolling over us. So we don't say things like, I rebuke you, but the Lord rebuke you. Christ rebukes you. His word rebukes you. Um, so, so keep that in mind. Um, Satan rules the world's sinful system. See John 12, John 14, John 16, Ephesians 6, Revelation 13. He's the prince of the power of the air. We've already covered that. Uh, this is kind of the point in the, the book, in the chapter, where it starts like repeating itself on the different layers because you've already covered all the references. Um, Satan has schemes. He has many schemes. He has targets. He has fiery darts. He has strategies. Uh, this book has multiple pages dedicated to the strategies of the devil, which are very interesting. Um, but basically, like everything that's evil in the world, like the adversary's third strategy, Satan will seek to depress or destroy the believer's enthusiasm for God's work. Number one, materialism. Number two, defeatism. Number three, negativism. Number four, pessimism. Like, oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Um, anyway, there's like footnotes and biblical references for that, but I'd never heard of it um, presented in that kind of way. Uh, the prototypical assault, the way the devil normally will assault, number one, by disguising himself. In Genesis 3, he came as this crafty serpent, uh, and then number two, with a dialogue. So then Satan, he'll come in disguise, and then he'll start talking to you, and discussing, and sharing, and trying to persuade you that, that this is okay. So when you hear that little voice inside your head that starts going and, and starting to rationalize and begin a dialogue about something that the Bible says is evil, but Satan says is not evil, don't listen. Number three, then, he works with doubt. He starts raising doubt to challenge the authority of God's word. And number four, then, comes denial. Satan fed Eve five lies disguised as partial truth. The first lie claimed that Eve would not die. Um, the second lie can be inferred from Genesis 3-4. Titus, or Satan implied that if God said they would die, but they would not, then God's word was unreliable. The third lie um, has to do with their eyes being open and whether or not God wants them to know uh, good and evil. The next one, the next 
um, tactic is with deliberation. Um, that's interesting. He, he's criticized the, the scientific method did not surface in the 19th century. It did not originate with the Industrial Revolution. Rather, its roots go back to Genesis 3, when Eve concluded that the only way that she could decide whether God was right or wrong was to test him with her mind and senses. Autonomous empirical research originated with Eve in Eden. Interesting. Uh, next one is death. Part of death, uh, death is, is part of Satan's attack. Um, next major point or subpoint under this is Satan's servant role. Yes, he is the devil, but he is God's devil, as Luther says. He is on a chain. He can't just do whatever he wants. He is limited. He, he does not have ultimate authority. Um, God is sovereign. God is over the devil. The devil is not sovereign. There are a variety of texts on this. Judges 9, Job 1 and 2, 1 Samuel 16, 1 Kings 22, 1 Chronicles 21, Zechariah 3, Matthew 4, Luke 22, John 13, Acts 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13. So all of these are texts which speak to and touch on that. Now, Point six. So that was point five, servant roles, and before that was the schemes of the devil. So now we're in point six, the Christian's defense. The primary text that speaks of spiritual armor and weaponry is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, especially the whole armor of God. We'll read that right now because if we don't get if we don't finish everything, I would like to at least read this. Ephesians six. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the, Holy, in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in, change, in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So each of these items, the breastplate of righteousness, these shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, and prayer— these all are primarily, these, these all can be classified as defensive. Now Paul turns to the most effective offensive resources available, which is prayer. He outlines six characteristics, praying at all times, in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with all perseverance and for all the saints. I think we don't usually think about the power of prayer I think that that just kind of goes over our heads oftentimes. We don't recognize that prayer is the primary offensive weapon for attacking and fighting against the devil. But it is true that that is the weapon that God has given to us. He also describes God's provisions, ways that God will help us fight against Satan, our Savior's victory at Calvary, promises for the overcomer from 1 John 2 and 5, Christ's intercessory prayer for us, Christ's protection for us, the Spirit's indwelling, the knowledge of Satan's schemes, believer's prayer, biblical instruction for defeating Satan, shepherds who strengthen and encourage the church, the local church, not mentioned here, but I'll add it. Confidence that Christ has won the ultimate victory. 
These are all tools that God has given for our toolbox. They're all pieces of armor and and ways of fighting against the devil and being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And point seven is Satan's judgment. There's his original judgment, which came uh, in the garden. And then there was the judgment uh, that came after the fall, um, Satan's judgment in the cross in Calvary. Uh, something, a significant blow was given, was dealt to Satan in the cross. And then there will be eschatological judgments of Satan. And then there will be a final judgment at the end of time when Satan will be cast into a lake of fire. Um, it's 8.19. We haven't even touched on demons yet. Demons are very similar to Satan. Um, and my subpoints on this. Can you hit go to the next one? Um, wow, formatting. So we've got the same like reality, demon possession, the character of demons, judgment of demons, history of the demons, power of demons. Um, demons are servants as well. The Christian's defense against demons, which is the same as Christian's defense against Satan. Uh, the power, yeah, the power of demons as well. Um, let me just talk for a second about point seven, the uh, possession, de- demonic possession. I do not believe that Christians can be possessed by demons, but I certainly think they can be oppressed by demons. You see that throughout the Bible with people like Job. Job was certainly oppressed by the devil. He was afflicted by the devil. Uh, the apostle Paul was afflicted by the devil. Um, Jesus was tempted by the devil. He was afflicted and, and assaulted and attacked by the devil. And if these three characters, these three individuals could be, then why do we think that we're better than them? Why do we think that we uh, cannot be afflicted by demons? We certainly can. That's the reason why God has given us passages like Ephesians 6. It's so that we can stand against not only the devil, but his demons as well. Uh, when he was here visiting with us, Pastor John Benzinger, uh, we, had a, we had a meeting under, under the stage over here that was a, uh, Pastor John was here and a couple other people and uh, an opposer who was uh, very hostile towards our ministry. And after that meeting, John and I were walking down the sidewalk to go meet up with Emma for dinner. And he looked at me and said, The devil is not omnipresent. He's only in one place at a time. The devil is not in Phoenix, Arizona. See, he's from Phoenix. He said that the devil might be, he might live in LA or New York or maybe Washington, D.C. or possibly the Vatican. But I think the devil was in that room tonight. And you could feel it. You could sense in that room, as John said, something dark entered the room at a particular moment in that, in that meeting. Um, but for the most part, I want you to just recognize there's only one devil, and he can only be in one place at a time. The rest of the time, it is not the devil himself that is afflicting us. It is demons that are afflicting us. So let that be an encouragement to you that we are generally not a big enough target for the devil to be worried about. We are instead harassed and assaulted by demons, not the devil himself. Um, there is much that could be said on this. Um, I think that it's easier for us as, as New York Christians to see the reality of the demonic. Um, I know before I, before I left the suburbs and came to the uh, beautiful city of New York, I was, I was thinking like, well, why is it that on the mission field, that's where the devil is active? Um, but then I came here to New York, which you could also argue is the mission field. And then I began having run-ins with people that fit the description of someone who is demon-possessed. Um, the, the, secular, like scientific community, medical community, uh, they have labels and medications to stamp on these things. But um, biblically speaking, uh, when a person starts quoting the demons in the Bible at you and then snaps from that one person to another person, I think we can just rest assured that is demonic activity. Um, 
I don't want to end on a negative note, so let's flip over to the next slide about the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, you see a character identified as the angel of the Lord. And just putting it very simply, that is, I believe, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ. It is Jesus showing up prior to his incarnation. Um, appears in multiple places in the Old Testament and possesses the characteristics of deity. Uh, he claims divine, the divine nature, uh, displays divine attributes. Uh, scripture equates the angel of the Lord with the Lord, with Yahweh. Um, yet the angel of the Lord and the Lord are not the same person. So that would be an argument for it being the Son instead of the Father. Um, he receives worship and doesn't refuse it. That's another, it's a very strong argument for it being divine. Uh, also, the angel of the Lord forgives sin, Genesis 48, Exodus 23. Uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, Abraham, Eliezer, Jacob, Moses, Balaam, Joshua, Gideon, Manoah, David, Elijah, Hezekiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, Zechariah, and Malachi. So, he appears quite a bit. Um, identification, we've just discussed that briefly. And then the New Testament correlation. The Old Testament pre-incarnate Christ view matches precisely with the New Testament explanation of God's eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, don't forget about entertaining angels. Um, Hebrews 13, too. I joked with Emma and others about, there's this visitor uh, lady who showed up here like four or five weeks in a row, came to every single thing, and then just disappeared. And I was like, that was an angel. Uh, it, it probably actually wasn't because uh, Josh Tucker was able to track her down using his skills. Um, so <laughs> she, she was uh, a real person, but um, nevertheless, Hebrews 13, 2 tells us to be hospitable people because some have entertained angels. Um, what do angels look like? I would say, don't worry about that. Do churches have angels? Um, how will Christians judge angels? Also, don't worry about that. And um, does Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, 28 refer to Satan, or does it refer to uh, a king in the Middle East? I would also say don't worry about that right now. Um, can Satan read our minds? Um, don't worry about that right now. Uh, I, would say, I would say no, but mm, maybe. Um, Christ and Satan are not related. They're not brothers. Um, can Satan or demons... Oh, this is the Q&A section, which I said we weren't going to get into. Can Satan or demons perform miracles? Uh, yes, they can. Um, are demons in the world today? Yes, they are. Can Christians bind Satan? Um, let me see what he says. Um, Speaking, uh, Matthew 16 speaks metaphorically about the apostles forgiving or not forgiving sin using the term bind uh, or prohibit or unforgiven or loose. Um, the ancient rabbis use this term. Um, Revelation 21 through 3 speaks of in Christ's millennial kingdom where they on, uh, at the outset that Satan is bound physically. And in, so, yeah, that's like the only spot where it says that Satan is bound and it's not us doing it. Um, also, I would contend very strongly that Satan is not bound right now, uh, which is one of my strongest arguments against amillennialism, because um, if Satan was bound at the moment, why are there entire churches in Afghanistan being slaughtered as we speak? Um, this, this might be the tribulation, but it is certainly not the millennium. Um, who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? Don't worry about that right now. And... Um, yeah, the end. So this is our, our vast overview. I would love to do a more in-depth uh, study on each of these components, like a whole, uh, a whole couple of sessions just devoted to the role of angels and the identity of angels, and then also for demons, because I think that 
I think it'd be helpful for us to understand, particularly as New Yorkers dealing with the stuff that we have to deal with on a daily basis, dealing with the stuff we have to deal with as a church. Um, this, this stuff is real. And after a while, you can kind of start to, to recognize it. Um, some people that are in more in the, the charismatic camp uh, speak about this like spirit of Jezebel, but I think there's something to it. You can recognize it. It's the same, and it's, it's the same spirit that my friend um, in Arizona is dealing with. It's the same thing that I dealt with in 2015 at my previous church. Um, it's, it's remarkable how... Satan's tactics are the same. They're just recycled over and over and over again. And the more we are aware of that, the more we are equipped and not surprised. So we're not um, freaking out or tripped up by it, but we, we recognize it. It's like in Major League Baseball. When a guy knows how to hit a curveball, he's not surprised when he sees a curveball coming and it looks like it's going to hit him in the face, but he knows it's a curveball. It's not. It's just going to drop and he can react properly. When we understand the tactics of the devil, we don't have to get tripped up by it. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to panic. Uh, we also don't have to deny these things and then be really confused because we're trying to deny reality. So uh, hopefully this is helpful to some degree for you all. Let's um, stand. We'll sing our last song. Then we'll pray because it is now 830.